0: And from time to time, I've no doubt that we get stuck and we might feel that we're not making much progress at all. It's a bit like this. Prayer, it should be a great privilege. It should be. But for many, it has become something of a problem. Not least a problem that can be induced by guilt, because the truth is, that we're not very good at it. Or, another issue when we think about prayer, is a bit like this. It should be a delight. It should be a delight. But more often than not, it is a duty. And sadly, something of a chore and a grind. Now, if I've exaggerated that, you are at perfect liberty to correct me. But, if I'm not mistaken... Oftentimes that is the dilemma. We believe in it and we are committed to it, but somehow it doesn't seem to be effective in our lives. And oftentimes it seems it doesn't even work. God on mute. God is silent. Uh, in case I had to check myself, mute in, in the dictionary means to refrain from speech. So, You are praying, and God isn't answering. And as a result, and you get this within Psalm 22, and I want us to take our uh, dilemma, or the one I'm presenting to you, and bring it to this psalm, and see what it has to say to us. The dilemma, then, is something like this. It's not a denial of the existence of God. You don't find that in Psalm 22. What you do find is the dilemma that God has distanced himself from us. So, we are not atheistic. We are somewhat agnostic. God has distanced himself. And in the context of prayer where we are urged to come to the Lord in all of our experiences in life, it can be exceedingly disappointing. Nobody has put it better than C.S. Lewis, as often he does, following the tragic death of his dear wife. And he goes through the traumas, the periods that everybody does. And then he says this, meanwhile... He poses the question, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms for me. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel that his pains upon your life are actually an interruption. But, now, Go to him when your need is desperate, and when all other help is vain. And what do you find? How was extraordinary that the greatest Christian apologist should say this. What do you find? A door slammed in your face, and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. God is on mute you may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. Is that C.S. Lewis having a bad day? Or does it actually resonate with us that when we come to church, we want to come as best we can without pretending? It is a terrible thing to belong to a church where you come and have your prejudices confirmed every week. I hope you wouldn't want to belong to a church like that. So the application, at least from C.S. Lewis and David, is concerned in Psalm 22, is that they felt abandoned by God, forsaken. God is unmoved; they are left alone to cope with their personal trauma, and they are actually no better, and perhaps even worse than the unbeliever because of their expectations. You see, that's the, that's the setting then for this um, psalm and bringing it right up to date to where we are. And for us as believing people, as Christian people, Psalm 22 verses 1 to 2 is a supreme example of personal lament. Personal lament. There it is. And <clears throat> those of us who know but a little of um, our Bibles and particularly from uh, the Gospels of Jesus praying and crying and lamenting, that you find that he took these words and spoke them from the cross as we know. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, by night, and am not silent. Now then. I think at this point we need to say something that I hope will, will help. We, we need to make this observation at least, that laments, complaints, laments we call them, are actually authentic expressions of faith as much as prayer. Laments are... Now, I don't mean whinging all the time. We're not talking about that, that, that unhealthy preoccupation that we can so easily have. A healthy lament which are honest in describing life as it is, not life as we think we would like it to be. Life, if you like, as it's experienced. As you and I experience it. And what is that like? Well, it's like this. It's, it's hard I bumped into somebody yesterday in the village took the funeral of his wife but less than two weeks ago I don't know what to do, he said I don't know it's hard and if you've been there, you know and, and, and sometimes even in the crowd it's, it's, it's lonely and it's hurtful and it's charged with emotional anger that's how the people of Israel felt and that's where this psalm finds its reference point They saw these things and they felt that God was absent and uncaring. There's not much point in believing in him. I want to quote uh, the commentator here. I found this very helpful. And he says this. I hope it makes sense to you. It did to me. He concludes then that a lament is, and I quote, a remarkable combination of honesty and dialogue. Have you got that? A lament is a remarkable combination of honesty and dialogue. By dialogue, to interface, to talk, to engage. And then he says this. Frequently, we are honest, but unable to be dialogical. Or conversely, we are politely dialogical, but unable to be honest. Lament are both. We interface with God, and we are no longer pretending. That would be a healthy thing for many Christian people. We interface, we dialogue with God, and we are not, like Mrs. Bouquet, keeping up appearances. Which is pretty pathetic, really. In fact, it's so serious, it's funny, isn't it? But not, it's a sick joke. Here's the interesting thing, and I hope that this will come out in our home groups, that out of the Psalms, 40 Psalms, 44-0, 40, are to do with laments. And it seems that the hymn book of the Bible anticipates that for us to worship God in a healthy way, we cannot be a type of constant celebratory church where these experiences are sub-Christian. So it is anticipated that we as Christian people believing in God will from time to time need to engage in this healthy pursuit of a lament of pouring out our hearts to God well then that's the introduction and very quickly now just look at the, the, the structure of this psalm and see how how you can get in it you can get into it yourself um, I think I've got a book here that I need um, yes here it is sorry right here's the structure it consists of three cycles each having a complaint a lament if you like then followed by a statement of confidence then of trusting God each cycle is like that uh, and it's fascinating to see how these are an integral part of what it is to pray to God. And it might mean as a consequence that you and I need to change our pattern of praying. It has much to teach us. Cycle 1, verses 1 to 5. Here it is. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It consists in one of the most bitter complaints about God that you can find. And Jesus echoed it, as you know. Not only is there a need for God's deliverance in some form, in this situation, what is compounded is that God is absent. He's just not there. He is my God. I affirm him. Yet he disappoints me. And the psalmist's cry echoes that basic question raised by many in in the very heart of suffering it's this, why? Are you afraid to do that? Do you feel it's a denial of God? Of his providence, his love? Why? Well, in verses 3 to 5, a change takes place. You see that the psalmist asked the question, why? It's a good question. It's a right question. In the context of faith. Not belligerent unbelief. As if somehow you are the most important person on the face of God's earth. And God has forsaken you. Not like that. It's a different spirit altogether. Why? The question of faith. And through it you are going to be more mature as a believer. And the psalmist knows there is a larger story, there is a bigger picture than his or her own experience of suffering. There's a broader plan, a bigger scheme. And you note in verse four and five these three three times this verb trusted is used. Isn't that interesting? Normally you would say when people ask why, it's a lack of trust. Not so. It's both. You are trusting, you are trusting three times and you're asking why. The implication is that to cry out to God for help is in fact an expression of trust and faith. And so you have this uh, cycle, a complaint followed by a statement. Very quickly then, cycle two. I just you, you will need to do your own work in Psalm 22 and when you go home you read it for yourself. Not a very nice introduction. Uh, In verse uh, 6, I'm a worm and not not human. Scorned by men, despised by the people. All who see me mock me, hurl insults, shaking their heads. And they say, what a put-down. Is this how God looks after his people? I've become a Christian. Well, if that's Christianity, you can keep it. It's not very nice, is it? That's what he's saying. He trusted in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. The basic structure is repeated in verses 6 to 8. It contains a second statement of complaint. The psalmist suffers powerlessness. These are the issues. Shame, mocking, derision, cynicism. The psalmist condition seems to deny that the Lord shows any concern. And that is compounded there in verse 8 by people being very cynical. The seeming abandonment by the Lord is reflected in the abandonment by the people. God's silence is matched by human cynicism. It's not a terror, you're between a rock and a hard place. Well, that's the atmosphere of Psalm 22. And that's the context often of praying. And yet verse 9 is again, and there's a whole series of turning points and reverting back and turning points. It's like variations on the same theme. So in verse 9, but you addressing the Lord. The Lord has been with the psalmist from birth. You can't be with me any longer than that. First as the midwife on arrival. Then literally in the Hebrew causing the psalmist to trust even when still a baby on his mother's breast. As you have it in verse 9. And then you see in verse 10 a pause. From birth I was set upon. Uh, from birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me. So he seems almost to relent, easing up on his complaint. There is no one to help, and then he looks at his circumstances. An interesting comparison is set up when we look back over these cycles as they come together. See in verses four and five. The psalmist speaks about. National trust. God being good to, to Israel, to the people. But when you get to verses 9 and 11, it's personal trust. And we need to do that. You may say, yes, I can see your trust within the church. And I can see that God is there. But what about me? And the collective must also become the personal. The personal and the collective. When we apply this, for example, in the credit crunch, and uh, one or two people have spoke to me, I'm saying in the next couple of weeks, I am not sure, and I've got all these commitments, if I actually have a job. Talking to one, one of our elders, just coming home from the prayer meeting, he was saying this, we we're, were walking, walking home, he said uh, out of 800 people, 200 key people are going to lose their jobs. And I, I, I'm not, I won't be surprised, I will be disappointed um, if I'm one of them. That's the atmosphere, and and therefore the personal, whether it's that, or health, or marriage, or family, or relationships, it all comes together there. Moving on quickly, the third cycle. Many bulls encircle me. You see verse 12 to 21. The cycle here begins with a complaint in verse 12 to 18, and it's actually now much more prolonged. The complaint is gaining momentum. And it is filled with vivid imagery. This, is, this isn't a euphemism. It's describing both the psalmist oppression and the situation in which he finds himself. And it's very descriptive. Bulls, roaring lions, wild dogs, surrounded by prey, being hemmed in, being fearful. And then, verse 15, you lay me in the dust of death. It is a statement of anguish by one whose trust in the Lord has been now contradicted by circumstances. Has the Lord changed sides? Has has the Lord joined the, the other side? And now I am bereft. Well, let's Come to the conclusion of the psalm, which is which is much more positive. But we need to make the progress. Of course, the danger is that you don't get stuck along the way. Uh, finally, in verses 22 to 31, it's quite a quite a lengthy psalm, but it's not it's not too difficult to get into. The structure isn't easy, but you'll be you'll benefit if you worked it. And now you come to the thanksgiving. This is the final section of this psalm. And don't forget the heading that we began with. God is on mute. A song of thanksgiving and deliverance begins to emerge. Look at verse 22. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, come on, praise him. You descendants of Jacob, honor him. revere him, all you descendants of Israel. You covenant people. And look, verse 24, he's putting things right now. Look, for he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has Actually, he is not on mute. Do you see it there? He has listened to the cry for help. So much of life is contradictory. Paradoxical, isn't it? You can't square the circle. How do, how do you work this through? Of course, essentially, this psalm is, is a prayer, but it's more than that. It's a prophecy, we know, of the suffering of the Lord Jesus. Jesus. The psalmist calls on others. So we move, if you like, from, from the vertical to the horizontal. Yes, I belong to him. But, you know, my relationship with him needs to be expressed in my relationship with other people. Covenant is not a private love affair between you and God. It is worked out on the public arena. He calls out to others to praise God as well. And as you look closer, verse 24, the laments are counted. Do you see that? It's not so much a contradiction. He said, I was wrong. They are counted. Now, where is God? We ask that question. 9-11 was the big one. Where is God in 9-11? Where is God in our tragedies, our sufferings? Without minimizing people's trauma, he is where he always has been and always will be. And he calls the shots and not us. And we need to fit in with him, not him with us. He is not silent. And he is not indifferent. And as you follow the rhythm, the rhythm of Psalm 22, it's important that you don't get bogged down on the way But with the complaints, legitimate, with the laments, healthy though they are, you also move on. You move on to prayer and you move on to praise. You make the journey and it is the journey of faith. So Psalm 22 and verse 1, it finds a much deeper meaning. On Jesus Christ on the cross. My God, my God. Why am I God forsaken? Why have you abandoned me? Spoken by Jesus on the cross. I think we've got time just to look at a reference here. In um, Mark's Gospel. Just two or three. Just to try to round this off. Mark's Gospel chapter 15. (coughs) Just so that we see now how Jesus takes this psalm and applies it in his own crisis. Mark 15 verse 34. It's 10.22 in the Church Bible. And so, verse 34. Mark 15. It's the sixth hour, that's verse 33. Darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And in the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi lama zabachthani? It's a question which means, there it is. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Turn back a page to Mark 14 and verse 26. Make a connection here as to how in our Christian lives, in the dark moments and in moments of great elation and joy, do we use the Psalms, times of trial and tribulation. In Mark 14 and verse 26, it's, it's just a comment really, but I think it's very helpful. The context, as you see, is the Lord's Supper. You have that in verses 12, right through. This is the blood of the covenant, says verse, which is poured out from many and so forth. And then the, the, the Lord's Supper is over. And then there's this one verse. When they had sung a hymn, which was a psalm, of course, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Much discussion has been, what was that psalm? What did they sing? what did Jesus choose was it because it was part of the the Hebrew lectionary the set reading the set psalm well most people agree it was from the section in psalm and let's have a look at it i'm suggesting to you it's psalm 116 let's have a look at this so they sang a psalm before going out to the Mount of Olives and the crucifixion now what is it? it just helps us to see how we as Christian people relate our, our Bible to our faith and our faith to our situation this is the Hallel section, the section of praise it's not all lament there is some Psalm 116 verse 1 I love the Lord for he heard my voice, he's not on mute now He heard my cry for mercy because he turned his ear to me. I will call on him as long as I live. Yes, the cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came upon me. I was overcome and troubled and with sorrow. And I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. The Lord, our God, is full of compassion. The Lord protects the simple-hearted and so on and so forth. And then, how does this song which would have been sung come to a conclusion verse 17 I will sacrifice a thank offering to the Lord and call on the name of the Lord I will renew my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people in the courts of the house of the Lord in your midst or Jerusalem I will fulfill my vows you see the application If, if if it isn't obvious already and it's this side by side not an either or you have lament, and you have prayer. You have complaint, and you have thanksgiving and praise. Juxtaposed, lament and complaint, praise and thanksgiving. And I think some of us, and I, and I believe that I'm right in saying this, have actually almost given up on the effectiveness of prayer, because quite frankly it isn't doing very much. We're very pleased about others, but we're rather sorry that for ourselves, maybe we're not terribly spiritual or something. We're not quite sure. I want to close by quoting a prayer. And it's interesting that uh, this prayer finds its roots 150 years ago in the Battle of Gettysburg, where Barack Obama set out on his journey to the White House, following Abraham Lincoln. And a soldier who prayed before the battle used this prayer, which has survived all those years. This is what he prayed. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn to humbly obey. I asked God for help that I might do great things. I was given infirmity that I might do good better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given need that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel my need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. And I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing I asked for but everything I hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am, among all all people, most richly blessed. There is a paradox in praying. It is not a contradiction. There are laments that are healthy, that are an authentic part of faith. And we need to get through that To trust and confidence so that we can say, as the psalmist does, Yes, if we have to, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But also to say,